G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Realfaith.org.au From 14 November 1932, we know the exact day, until shortly before he died in 1967, he wrote this single word, eternity, in chalk on the streets of Sydney and beyond. He did it every day for 35 years, virtually without fail. And he became, in later life, a celebrity. Welcome to Real Faith. Conversations about the impact faith has on our lives and the challenges we go through. Helping us today and giving us hope for tomorrow. That's real people, real life and real faith with Eric Scadabo. Well, today our guest is once again Roy Williams. Last time Roy shared his story and how he became a Christian. This time Roy will share the remarkable story of Arthur Stace, who's one of the most influential Christians in Australian history. This is quite remarkable because at one point in Arthur's life, it looked like he had no future as he sank deeper and deeper into alcoholism. But as we'll hear today, God had other plans. We'll begin with a portion of the book that Roy co-authored entitled Mystery Eternity, the story of Arthur Stace. As night fell on the 31st of December 1999, five million Sydney-siders looked forward to hours of splendid celebration. It was the eve of the 21st century, the eve of the third millennium. A feast of live entertainment was planned, and much of it on Sydney's majestic harbor. At 10 seconds to midnight, the countdown began. Then, as the new millennium arrived, there came a massive fireworks display. The focal points were Sydney's two matchless icons of engineering, the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House. At the end, a fiery cascade erupted downwards from the bridge's deck. And then, as the smoke cleared, a word came into view, emblazoned in gold letters just below the apex of the bridge's towering arch. The first written word of the third millennium in distinctive copperplate script was eternity. The crowds cheered with gusto. This was a word deeply and affectionately associated with the history of Sydney and with one man in particular, Arthur Stace. And today we're going to hear the story of Arthur Stace. Our guest is the co-author of the book, Mr. Eternity, The Story of Arthur Stace. Welcome back to the program, Roy Williams. Thank you for having me again, Eric. Glad to have you with us. And of course, you wrote that. That's part of your book. Yes, indeed. That, that's the introduction. Mm. Okay, so that gets my attention. I want to know more. How did this guy, Arthur Stace, who I believe back in the 1920s, he was a homeless alcoholic. So he goes from the lowest of the low to having his word eternity be part of the New Year's Eve celebrations to bring in the new century. I mean, how does that happen? Well, it's a long and amazing true story. Uh, Great example of truth being stranger than fiction. Exactly. Uh, But yes, he he was in the 1920s, an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. He wasn't always homeless, though he did sleep on the streets from time to time. He drifted from one sort of dingy rented place to another. But the first thing to understand about Arthur is that uh, he'd come back from World War I. He'd Mm -hmm. served on the Western Front as a stretcher bearer. And he'd come back shell-shocked, 
we'd call it PTSD nowadays. Mm-hmm. He'd already had an alcohol problem even before he went to World War One, but it was exacerbated when he came back. And in those days, there was, um, you know, very limited understanding of the problem. And he drifted more and more into uh, a life of uh, degradation, really. Uh, alcohol, in and out of jail for short times. And I understand uh, that there was some mental illness in his family? Yes, indeed. His father and mother both were alcoholics as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, his father died in a mental asylum. Um, his upbringing was really awful, and we can go into detail about that. And, and where was he born and raised? He, he was born in Redfern, working-class suburb of Sydney, mm-hmm. and uh, he was one of eight children. He was in the middle. And his mother was forced, when he was seven years old, to actually give him up. Oh, okay. He was made a ward of the state. He was mm-hmm. fostered out at the age of seven because his mother, who by then was on her own because she'd been a, deserted by her husband, mm-hmm. um, just couldn't cope. So she she um, she took Arthur and two of his brothers to um, uh, an institution which which arranged that he be fostered to a lady in Goulburn, country town in New South Wales, where he lived for seven years. Incidentally, that that is almost certainly where he learned how to write, that beautiful copper plate handwriting that, uh, that he made famous, almost certainly was taught to him at Goulburn Public School in the 1890s. Well, we should say the connection between the word eternity and Arthur Stace was that for years, some 30 years, he wrote eternity in chalk on sidewalks in different places all over Sydney. Is that it? That's correct. That's, that's, that's the basic achievement of Arthur's life. From 14 November 1932, we know the exact day, until shortly before he died in 1967, he wrote this single word, eternity, in chalk on the streets of Sydney and beyond. He did it every day for 35 years, virtually without fail. And he became, in later life, uh, a celebrity. Okay, we well, don't want to get ahead of the story, but just wanted to make sure we all understood why eternity became so associated with Arthur Stace. Now, getting back to his childhood, what were the general impressions? Uh, did he have any spiritual upbringing at all? Almost certainly not. He was he was baptized. Uh, we we know that much um, as as an Anglican, Church of England, mm-hmm. of course, was called in those days. Mm-hmm. But his parents were no hopers. They, they really were. His father was essentially unemployable, though he did come from a distinguished upper-class background in England. He was one of these ne'er-do-wells who came out from England in the 1870s trying to make his fortune in Australia, but he, he failed dismally. He could never mm-hmm. hold down a job and married a local woman. They had eight, eight children between them. Um, Arthur, in later life, used to tell stories about how he and his brothers and sisters used to have to steal bread and milk from doorsteps Hmm. in order to feed themselves, slept under the house, under Hessian sacks. You know, they were constantly being evicted from premises and moving on. Oh, wow. So quite a rough childhood. Oh, as as rough as guts, you know, really. And this is in the days before any sort of social welfare. So Hmm. the family relied on charity and the, the, the pittance that um, the, the husband could bring in from time to time. 
But as I say, they, they both became alcoholics. And when Arthur was seven, his mother gave him up to the state and he was fostered out to this, to this lady in Goulburn where he lived for seven years. We don't know much about his life in Goulburn, but eventually his time was up. Uh, when he turned 14, he had to go to work. And that, that was the norm in wow. those days. Most, most children didn't, didn't go beyond what we now call primary school. So this was about 1900 or something? Correct. He, he, mm. he left uh, Goulburn in 1899. Okay. And he was still a, technically a child, so he had to be fostered out again. And he was fostered out to a new place on the south coast of New South Wales. And he worked in a coal mine for a few years. He was a child coal miner. Wow. Down, down the south coast in the Port Kembla region. Narrowly escaped the worst ever mine disaster in Australian history. Um, mm. He'd worked at the mine where, at Port Kembla, where um, about 100 men were killed. Narrowly escaped that. But by the age of 15, he himself was, uh, had taken to the bottle and, and was essentially unemployable. And he spent a few years as, a, as a, a swagman, just sort of drifting around New South Wales, humping his bluey and sleeping in logs and on the roadside. Sounds like the song uh, Waltzing Matilda. Exactly. That is, he, he, did, he, played the, he played that role. There was a great anecdote one night. He apparently slept in a hollow log, emerged oh, wow. the next morning and was told by some black there's a nest of tiger snakes in there, pal. <laughs> um, but he's, he, soon, he had nine lives. It was, wow. it was obviously providential. God yeah. was looking after him. Yeah. Because many of his, both his parents, as I said, his father died in a mental asylum. Mother died young. Two of his sisters ended up as prostitutes hmm. um, in Sydney. In fact, Arthur worked for one of his sister's brothels. Um, he was a what they called a lookout, so he huh. had to um, he had to keep watch for the police. Uh, oh, I see. Yeah, it was an illegal house of ill fame. He also illegally transported grog from the pub to the to the brothel. I mean, this was his life. He eventually ended up in Sydney in his early 20s. This is in the first decade of the 20th century, just after Federation. And he drifted into this life of, at first, petty crime, but eventually fairly serious crime. He, mm. he, he became a member of a criminal gang. Mm-hmm. And in later life, he told hair-raising stories about beatings and, that he witnessed and um, reprisals. So his life was a complete, complete mess. It, he he was uh, he was a criminal, criminal mm. and borderline alcoholic. Now, of course, in 1914, World War One began, and in the early stages of the war, Australian men were very keen to enlist, mm-hmm. especially Australian working class men, because for for many of them, it, the, the idea of enlisting was more attractive than the life they were living back here. Wow. Yeah, things were so tough that the, the prospect of a decent wage, Australian mm. Australian soldiers actually paid well compared mm. to many other countries. Mm-hmm. A lot of people snapped up the chance for a bit of adventure. Mm-hmm. This, was, this was before the, the, the true horrors of World War I were, had emerged. Mm-hmm. Arthur actually would have been ineligible in the early stages because he wasn't tall enough. He was a... He was a the early recruitment standards were very high, and Arthur was a tiny little shrimp of a guy. He, huh. you know, in the old language, he was about five foot five and 
seven stone ringing wet. Um, okay, that's basically my height, but I, I, I take your point. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, um, by 1916, World War One had become a stalemate on the Western Front, mm-hmm. and recruitment had dried up, and Australia, and like all countries, were desperate for men. So they relaxed the recruitment standards, and Arthur got in. We actually unearthed uh, his enlistment form. We, we got it from the uh, War Memorial Archives. It's clear he actually fibbed. He told a number of fibs in order to be enlisted, to be accepted. You know, he, un- he underrated his, his age and overstated his qualifications with a gun and ver- various other things. But he got in and he eventually ended up in France, served as a stretcher bearer, uh, had some hair-raising escapes from shells and he must have witnessed appalling things. Um, eventually contracted pleurisy, which again was providential because he nearly died from it, but it got him off the battlefield and back to England where he convalesced for the rest of the war Then came back in a troop ship in 1919. Miraculously, because he had bad lungs for the rest of his life, miraculously, providentially, he escaped the Spanish flu, which disproportionately in 1920 wiped out many young Australian men. Oh, yeah. But somehow, yeah. somehow survived the war. It was the earlier version of COVID mm-hmm. 100 yeah. years ago, yeah. just after World War One. So Arthur had already had several narrow escapes by the time he gets back to um, Australia, and then he lives out the 1920s in the way we discussed earlier as a virtual derelict. Um, checked himself into a psychiatric clinic at one stage, didn't help. So by 1929, when the Great Depression hits and things become really tough, extra tough, tough enough already, but extra tough for anyone who was of the working class, let alone the underclass, um, he was right on the edge, at his wit's end. He's 45 by this stage. Our guest today is once again Roy Williams, who's sharing the remarkable story of Arthur Stace, who became one of the most influential Christians in Australian history. We'll hear more of Arthur's incredible story when we return right here on Real Faith. The Word for Today is Australia's most widely read daily devotional, designed to give you practical teaching to keep you focused on your relationship with Jesus. Read it online or subscribe to the free printed edition at thewordfortoday.com.au. You're listening to Real Faith, conversations with real people about how God works in their lives. If you want to know more about integrating faith into your life, our website is realfaith.org.au. Just go to the website and you'll find helpful articles about the impact faith can have on your life. Once again, that's realfaith.org.au. Welcome back. I'm Eric Scadabo, and today, once again, I'm chatting with Roy Williams, who's the co-author of the book, Mystery Eternity, the story of Arthur Stace. Roy is sharing Arthur's incredible story and how he went from looking like he had no future to becoming one of the most influential Christians in Australian history. Now here's more of Arthur's story. He told a story in later life where it was in 1930. He was hauled up before a magistrate for the umpteenth time on some drunken disorderly charge and the magistrate gave him yet another lecture. Um, You do realise I've got the power to send you to Long Bay and lock you up. And um, Arthur by this stage didn't really care if he was sent to Long Bay. 
In fact, he actually wanted to be locked up one, one time and mm. the, the police officer wouldn't lock him up, just send him on his way. He was, he was that desperate. Yeah, you, you really are down and out and at a low yeah. point when you want to be locked up, that that would be a better situation than when, what you're in. That's what Arthur had reached. Yeah. He, he couldn't cope. Well, it sounds like the pole, the addiction at that point, the alcoholism, I mean, he just could not live without the alcohol, it sounds like. Yeah, and it was shocking quality alcohol. That's the other thing to remember. Mm. You know, they used to mix their own with metho and, uh, you know, we're not talking about even beer. We're talking about horrendous stuff, which must be doing your body enormous harm. Yeah, so really strong stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, height of the Great Depression, mm-hmm. 30% unemployment. I mean, Arthur was already unemployable, but yeah. then you had tens of thousands of men in Sydney and all capital cities around Australia, like all around the world. Um, and he's wanting to be in jail just so he has a place to sleep, it sounds like. A roof over his head and a yeah. square meal. That's yeah. right. So the um, this brings into the picture another vital player in the story, a man by the name of Hammond, the Reverend Robert Hammond. Mm-hmm. So by 1930, Hammond was probably the leading provider of charity through his church, St Barnabas Church on Broadway in the Sydney, mm-hmm. to the underclass of Sydney, especially men, you know, down-and-out men. So Hammond was a fascinating figure. He was, in his Christian beliefs, uh, what we'd call very evangelical. Mm-hmm. But he also had this strain of what we'd also now call left-wing social justice views. Mm. He argued for the temperance cause, which was a progressive cause in that in those days. That what is, is that? to limit temperance, to, to limit the intake of alcohol, to pass laws that made it harder for people to get drunk quickly. Mm. We never had what you had in the States of total prohibition. Mm-hmm. We came close and we had six o'clock closing of hotels for decades. Hammond was at the forefront of that campaign. It was mm-hmm. a progressive campaign, largely to protect women and children, as well as drunken men. But he also provided a big network of charitable services to the men of Sydney. He set up what were called the Hammond Hotels, which were essentially old converted warehouses and factories where the unemployed men could go to get a feed and mm-hmm. You coat it, shave. So this sounds kind of like the stereotypical uh, Salvation Army type places. Exactly. But it, exactly. it wasn't Salvation Army, but it was like that type of thing. It was the Church of England. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the Church of England run, headed by this guy, Hammond. And Hammond became a respected public figure. He, he had the ear of governors and premiers senior, all, and other senior politicians in New South Wales. He was a household name by this stage. Mm. Anyway, he also had a um, regular Wednesday night men's meeting at St Barnabas on Broadway. And the offer was to all and sundry, uh, all men, if you're prepared to listen to a gospel sermon for half an hour or more, at the end, you'll get a cup of tea and a rock cake. So if you can sit through it, you'll get a little treat. If you sit through it, you'll get a little treat. Yeah. Now, Arthur, in, in his later life, said, well, in those days, you had to know about those things to stay alive. So that mm. night, we know the exact date, 6th of August, 1930, cold winter's night in Sydney, height of the Depression. And this is the lowest point 
of his life. Absolute lowest point. Mm. Uh, might have been the same day that the that magistrate gave him a lecture, but it was certainly around the same time. He and a few of his mates stumble along to St Barney's on Broadway, go into the hall, and it's packed with men like them, mm-hmm. except that Arthur notices there's half a dozen neatly dressed, respectable-looking men at the front, including Hammond. Must have stood out like a sore thumb in that crowd. Exactly, and he, yeah. he said to one of his mates, look look at them and look at us. Mm. I'm having a bit of what they've got. Huh. So Hammond then gives a sermon. We don't, we, we don't know, but we can guess. It's probably from Luke and included the, the prayer of the repentant publican. Mm-hmm. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Anyway, Arthur's story, and there's no reason to doubt it, is that somehow mysteriously at that meeting he was convicted of his sinfulness, hopelessness, mm-hmm. and straight afterwards he left the meeting, walked across Broadway into the park, it's called Victoria Park, uh, next to Sydney University, knelt down under one of the big fig trees and prayed the prayer of the repentant publican. Mm-hmm and accepted Christ that night. Now, this is where the story gets incredible. He always swore, and there's no reason to doubt him, that somehow, miraculously, from that night onwards, he never touched a drop of alcohol. He did one of those very rare cold turkey cures. Now, that is miraculous, considering everything that you just shared about his life before that. Yes, yes. And that, to him, was the number one sign that he'd been accepted by Christ and Mm -hmm. and that his life could be turned around. Now, Hammond then became crucial because he went to Hammond Mm -hmm. and told his story, and Hammond took him under his wing. And for Hammond, Arthur was sort of the living embodiment of everything he stood for, Mm. the importance of the gospel, the possibility of redemption, the temperance cause. So he put Arthur to work in one of his hotels looking after homeless men. And Arthur also got involved in the local church and his Christian journey had begun. So that was the first key turning point in the eternity story. There's a second key event, Mm -hmm. and that comes two years later, in 1932. It's the same year that the Sydney Harbour Bridge was completed and opened. Anyway, towards the end of that year, on the 14th of November, 1932, he went along to a crusade, the last night of a crusade being conducted at a Baptist church, the Baptist Tabernacle in Darlinghurst in Sydney. Mm-hmm. There was a visiting preacher, a young up-and-coming star by the name of John G. Ridley, mm-hmm. who, who became one of Australia's greatest evangelists. He was a young man at that time. That night he preached a sermon called Echoes of Eternity, based on Isaiah 57.15, which in the King James Version actually describes God as being he who inhabits eternity. It's an amazing sermon. Eternity! Eternity! Thus saith the High and Holy One, who inhabiteth eternity. I dwell in the holy place with him also who is of a humble spirit 
to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite one, eternity. Arthur was inspired by this sermon. Um, Ridley, another amazing story, Ridley himself had, was a veteran of World War I. Mm-hmm. So Ridley, completely different upbringing to Arthur's. He, he'd come from an upper-class family in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, only miles from Arthur, but a whole world away of privilege, wealth. Mm-hmm. But he too had volunteered for World War I, had horrendous experiences, but came back with the military cross, a hero, but also shell-shocked mm-hmm. and very ill. So they had that in common. And I'm sure that resonated with Arthur. Oh, yeah, he could identify with him. You could identify with everything Ridley was saying in this yeah. sermon about suffering mm-hmm. and how eternity would make sense of that suffering. That was one of the themes of, uh, of Ridley's sermon. So the word eternity obviously had resonance with Arthur Stace. Had extraordinary resonance with Arthur. Mm. My theory, it's just a theory, is that mm. one of the things that resonated most was as I say, really linking the concept of eternity with providing a sense of meaning in the longer term Mm. to suffering in this life, which Arthur had more than his share of. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the sermon, Ridley um, announced in this incredible old-fashioned voice, which you don't hear anymore, half Australian, half English, I wish that I could sound or shout this word to the Streets of Sydney. Mm. Now, Arthur took up the challenge. He, he came out of the church that night, happened to have a stick of chalk in his pocket for some reason or other that no one quite knows why. Huh. And he wrote, he kneeled down on the pavement and wrote the word eternity on the corner, Burton Street, Darlinghurst. And that was his first time. Mm-hmm. And he looked at it and, gee, that looks pretty good. It was in his copper plate handwriting. I believe he learned at Goldman Public School. Mm-hmm. And he was inspired. He was inspired that night. Well, that's that's what I'm going to do. I am going to get that word, that message across to the people of Sydney. And from that day forward, every day, the rest of his life, more or less, he went out, usually in the morning, anonymously, writing that word on the streets of Sydney. By the end of his life, he'd covered every suburb in Sydney and many country towns in New South Wales. And eventually it became noticed. So he did that for 35 years. Where will you spend eternity? Turn and believe this very hour. That's a portion of John Ridley's historic sermon called Echoes of Eternity. And it was that very sermon that inspired Arthur Stace to write the word eternity on the streets of Sydney and surrounding areas for over 30 years. Next time, we'll hear even more about the impact of Arthur Stace as Roy Williams continues to share Arthur's story. Meanwhile, to learn more about the book that Roy co-authored about the life of Arthur Stace, you can go to the website, mrieternity.com. Once again, that's mrieternity.com. Well, until next time, when we'll hear more of Arthur Stace's improbable story, I'm Eric Scadabo. So long, and God bless. You've been listening to Real Faith. And if you have any questions or comments, you can send us a message through our website, realfaith.org.au. That's realfaith.org.au. 
Real Faith is a production of Vision Christian Media. This program is a production of Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, see vision.org.au.